Okay, let's ask for God's mercies. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for all that you do and uh, how you brought us all together in your son, uh, gathered in your church here in Moscow, and we'd ask that you would bless it and our lives and teach us things that we need. In your son's name, amen. amen. Um, as you know from the, uh, the sales pitch on this Bible study, uh, the idea is to go through five things, not because five is a magic number, but it's five is the length of the attention span I think is available in the Christian community. <laughs> and uh, so I try to come up with five things that in the years of, of dealing with people that, things seem, that seem to be noticeably absent in their understanding of the scriptures, of uh, the things of God. And uh, there's a lot of other good things in the Christian faith. These five are not the good things. These five are things that we noticed are crucially absent, or dangerously absent. And uh, I thought for the first one we would be covering the sublime vision of God. And just in the title alone, I think that people get a little confused, because they usually think of the doctrine of God, what their creedal formulation is for God, or um, whether they're Trinitarian or monotheistic, or uh, uh, what, what is their view in those terms. The sublime vision is a different matter altogether. Um, that, uh, um, this is how, how numinous the presence of God is on your horizon. How not, um, there is a, uh, the power of the vision of divine things. When we speak of divinities, we often subtract the Almighty from our thinking because we don't often think of God as divine. Definitionally, he is, of course. Definitionally, we're theists. Definitionally, we believe in a deity. But we don't view him as a divine agent. So I wanted to go back and start from the beginning. I've been reading Mere Christianity and Lewis. I'm going to be reading a section of that a little later. Um, and some aspects that have come up in some of my uh, reading uh, recently. And I had been looking over the essay on fairy stories uh, by Tolkien. And uh, he always has that great quote, I quote it all too often, right here on the top of the left-hand margin. The gods are, after all, gods. And it is a matter of some moment what stories are told of them. Now he's not telling us this to give us some sense of biblical help. He's writing about fairy stories and how you, how you tell fairy stories. Um, but it's, it's so pointedly right. What, you, what story you tell yourself about God infects, affects your devotion, your worship, your piety, your obedience, all sorts of aspects in your life. How you stand and are viewed by the world as someone who has the spirit of the holy gods, as they said of Daniel in, in the book of Daniel. Or do they just say, oh, he's a Christian? Uh, whatever they mean by that. Well, first off, it's helpful to define God. I have a look it up in the OED. And here it is, you don't have to look it up. What is a God? A superhuman person who is worshipped as having power over nature and the fortunes of mankind, a deity. He said, well, that was pretty self-evident, Evan. I could have written that, maybe not with that level of English, but it is the OED. Um, a superhuman person. 
That means it's an agent sentient above man. Superhuman, above man. Personal, it's not a force. It's personal. And it has power over the things that man deals with. His nature and himself. Man is and his environment. That's what we mean when we say a god. So when we say the sublime vision of God, are we getting any further? Well, we know what the God part is. The God part um, is we're dealing with this agent who has effects, personal superhuman agent, who has effects in the world that we um, have, inhabit. But what about the sublime? I also dug up a definition of the sublime for you. In aesthetics, the sublime, I won't skip over the Latin, is the quality of greatness or vast magnitude, whether physical, moral, intellectual, metaphysical, aesthetic, spiritual, or artistic. Greatness or vast magnitude. Primarily, I didn't put this in, has, has to do with height. It's aboveness. The term especially refers to a greatness with which nothing else can be compared, and which is beyond all possibility of calculation, measurement, or imitation. So when we deal with a god almost by definition, we are having a sublime vision. Or we're supposed to be. But we managed to strip God of all of his sublimity. Turned him into an omni this, an omni that, some Hellenistic category that we, we lined out and fought with other people of different denominations about their definitions, were they as good as ours. We, dis we subtracted his divinity from him, and we subtracted our experience of his height, because sublimity is the experience with that height. Now, the higher it gets, the more huge the thing you're viewing uh, gets, the more threatening it is. So, the more secure you are, the better you are able to encounter higher things. Okay? The, the, you need to be secured to be dealing with a personal agent, superhuman, that's in charge of your affairs, that has a force in your affairs, you had better be secure. So I have that just at a point in bold, the security, the vantage point, intensifies the sublime. So, now I want to look at the scriptures. The problem of believing in a god. When you place a, a god over you. When you know that it's just sort of self-evident. You don't have to say over you. It's redundant. Gods are over you. When you have a god, there's an automatic um, crisis, an automatic question. What's he going to do? I am under him. He is over me. The atheists love to be atheists because it absolves them in their minds of that little problem. Exodus 33:18. Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Remember, you are able to view higher things if you're secure enough to view them. Being a man isn't secure enough to view the living God. 
No man shall see me and live. Look at this Job 33 passage. This is Elihu. The next two passages are the good guy in the book of Job, speaking before God speaks at the end of Job. Elihu says, Behold, in this you are not right. He's speaking to Job. I will answer you. God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of my words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men when, while they slumber on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and cut off pride from man. He keeps his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. There's this unseen, higher-up thing. You're not allowed to see it. You can't see it and live. And God is standing up unperceivable. No man does not perceive it, the way he's communicating to man. But the way he communicates to man brings with it terrors. And it's an affecting thing on man. He, he's doing this to man. And, and the next thing he says here in chapter 37 of Job, God comes across um, as a storm god. The ancient gods were, the high gods of most of the pantheons of antiquity were storm gods. That's why Zeus is the high god. That's why Hadad Rimen was the high god. Baal was a, high, a storm god. Um, and Yahweh was described in this passage as a storm god. Now listen to Elihu here. It's one of my favorite passages in the scripture. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Hearken to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the shower and the rain, be strong. He seals up the hand of every man, that all men may know his work. Then the beasts go into their lairs, and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture, the clouds scatter his lightning. They turn round and round by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction, or for his land, or for love, he causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind, can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as a molten mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? And now men cannot look on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with terrible majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power and justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore men fear him 
He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Tremendous passage. That last bit just as, and it starts out with, at this also my heart trembles. What we're looking for in the sublime vision of God is the feeling, the anticipation a Christian should have of meeting the personal agent. Because we've stripped God of his personality by defining him as a person. I know arguments have gone on for weeks, months, years, centuries over the personhood of God, and nobody is thinking of him as a person on any side of the argument. Nobody is dealing with him as if he is a person. Nobody is dealing with him as if he is as high as they say he is. Now, what happens here, and and this was on my mind because uh, reading Surprised by Joy and Mere Christianity recently, um, and I have this little quote from Lewis on the left-hand side, um, there right in the middle. And he had been falling away from Christianity. He'd grown up with all the right doctrines and just did not believe it, really. And he went off to school and started having epiphanies of northernness, he called it, that affected him in a huge way. Gave him this longing that was uh, pronounced. And he says this about it, surprised by joy. If the northernness seemed then a bigger thing than my religion, that may partly have been because my attitude toward it contained elements which my religion ought to have contained and did not. Skipping down in the passage. Yet, unless I am greatly mistaken, there was in it something very like adoration, some kind of quite disinterested self-abandonment to an object which securely claimed this by simply being the object it was. I came far nearer to feeling this about the Norse gods, whom I disbelieved in, than I had ever done about the true God while I believed. Sometimes I could almost think I was sent back to the false gods, there to acquire some capacity for worship against the day when the true God should recall me to himself. A tremendous, tremendous thing. What was it? It's what, as he mentions earlier in the book, He said, if you don't understand this longing for the sublime that Lewis encountered with this northerness, because it had to do with height and spaciousness and severity and all these things that were threats to man, that's what sublimity is, the the, the threat of the height and your security in it. That's your, your sense of the sublime. He said, if you don't understand that about him, you don't understand anything about his life. You won't understand why C.S. Lewis was C.S. Lewis. It led him to Christ. And it led him to Christ as one who absolutely believed, you might say, a pagan notion of the one true God that we've just encountered in Job. Now, Job is a pre-Jewish book. It's not a Jewish book. It's not a Jewish poem. There are no Jews in it. Uh, it's a poem about the Most High God that expresses that which noble thinkers were... Um, desiring about God, and Elihu especially wanted, and, and when God comes onto the, well, we read, read that in the next passage. But you'll notice what, you know, Lewis encountered it with the Norse gods, Siegfried and the Twilight of the Gods, uh, certain elements. He's got it in some in nature, um, and the Elihu in nature. He sees it in the storm, he sees it in the lightnings, he sees it in the rain, the ice. Um, these things that beat human beings around and still to this day you get those silly little uh, storm chaser cars that are all welded up and look like they're trapezoids running down the highway 
and oh yeah, that's going to keep you on the ground. <laughs> you know, Cat 5 is going to come along and pick it up and take it to Oklahoma. It still kills us. It still rips people apart. It's still, we cannot stop the things of nature. And the Elihu says, I don't know if it's for correction or for the land or for love, but he's doing it. And this is what Job was not looking at, was not looking at God's immense greatness as a real agent personal to him in whose world you happen to dwell. Now, when we get to that point, now again, Lewis looked at the Norse gods, he picked it up there. Others can go stand uh, you know, in their backyard during a, a thunderstorm and pick it up there. But it's really supposed to be picked up. You're not picking up a, some sort of pantheism or primitivism about gods. The Bible encourages you to describe God in this way. And the Lord comes to speak to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Gird up your loins like a man, I will question you, and you will declare to me. Will you even put me to the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Deck yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour forth the overpowering overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone that is proud and abasing. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together, bind their faces in the world below. Then will I acknowledge, also acknowledge you that your own right hand can give you your victory. God is being a bit sarcastic, saying, yeah, can you be who I am? Can you punish the wicked? Can you shape the cosmos, shape nature like I shape nature? Yeah, when you do, when you clothe yourself in this kind of majesty, then I will acknowledge that you have the right to do things yourself. But an awful lot of Christians have become so very casual. I blame my Bible story books as a kid. I blame Sunday school. I blame my church. I blame well, just about everybody. Uh, because everything was geared to make Jesus Christ and the Christian message accessible. You know, just um, a secure place to be, a secure place to stand. But there's a danger in this. I mean, I wanted to, you, know, you say, four pages of scriptures, I have a, ah. And I was just being selective. Now, I wanted you, I'm, I'm reading through, I'm not going verse by verse, I'm reading through sections of it and trying to point to things so that you realize this is not an Old Testament view alone, it's a New Testament view as well. We look at the Romans passage. Oh, and I, I, over on the side, I won't read through it, but you know, part of this visioning thing, when we're going to have a vision of sublimity regarding God, you have to know what I'm looking at, what is it doing, what is it conveying, how am I seeing God here, uh, how high is it, how secure am I, who is the God I'm approaching? I have the Psalm 19 that is quoted later in Romans 10. The uh, Yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. That's about nature teaching everybody that God is God. And Elihu has appealed to it. And God has appealed to it. And in Romans 1, the next passage, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men, 
who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So this vision of God, the sublime vision of God, the capability of having it, thankfully is there because God has communicated it to us. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, you'll refer back to Exodus, you can't look at him or you'll die, or he is not really perceivable in how he communicates to us, but he does. His invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. How often do you get talked to out of some you know, creation lecture where they talk about the argument by design and they quote this passage? Well, it's legitimate, but it just stripped it of its, of, you know, in a sense, its power to us on this front. Invisible nature clearly perceived. We are shown it in these lower things that we can approach. We are shown it in mountains. Um, the, the holy mountain of God, Zaphon, in the far, far north, which is in Syria, uh, was the mountain of God, supposedly where God and the gods met together. Uh, you see great cedars, you see great towers, you see great... Um, works of God. You see thunderclouds, you see lightnings, you see tornadoes. Um, you're given not God himself, you're given the image we can compass. He cannot be seen or we die. But he does give us something at our level in the things that have been made. But he's clearly taught eternal power and deity in those things. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. That's one of the dangers of looking at things that are concrete but that convey God to us. The primitive man or the man who is foolish in order to keep away from the righteousness of his God, will turn it into a river god or into a, uh, some lower echelon god and then make an idol and worship that thing. But these are all expressions of the Creator. So when God gives them up, we're flipping over to the... He's got those things about how he gave them up to sin. One of the things that happens when I don't have a sizable, effected um, dismay. It's a good word. Lewis uses it. Dismay about God. The sense of the numinous. The numinous is the, is the radiance or glow of deity. So when you deal with anything that has the numinous about it, and oh, like the guy with the double rainbow, okay, that is... Um, I have somebody having a reaction that is dismayed. Probably a little loaded, but um, did you guys, you're all, know what I'm talking about, the double rainbow? Okay. Yeah, you're young. You've been there probably more than once. It talks about how they get given up to all their passions because they have not honored God or given him thanks. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and improper conduct and a list of sins. Part of what we deal with in Christianity would be removed 
in our own lives, in the lives of people we deal with in the church, if we would stop, not because it's not beneficial, stop being so insistent about getting the definition right and more insistent on encountering the person of God, encountering the sublime agency that is God, which is, has a reaction involved in it, a sense of, of beauty and fear, a sense of overwhelmed, well, as, as Lahu said, my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. That's what the acknowledgement of God provides. The acknowledgement of God uh, is supposed to have the effects of... There's your brother right there. Hey, Heather. Um, <coughs> the acknowledgement of God um, um, is supposed to have... Well, you put acknowledgement is supposed to happen. Then honor and thanks. You know, how much sin... You know, we talk about things like abortion in the world, homosexuality, all these basic big social sins that we all know about, and, and we argue over whether it's a, you know, when does the soul enter the body. But if people honored what God was doing and gave thanks to Him for what He did, how much killing would be less? How much throwing away, you might say, the created heterosexual norm would be there. Well, people would still sin, but Christians are leaving aside this great, valuable um, intensity. Have you ever, oh, Leslie was watching a video the other day on YouTube or something about soldiers coming home to see their families. I think she forwarded it to everyone she knew, <laughs> except me. Now, it wouldn't have the desired effect. The desired effect is for every woman to watch it and weep to her heart's content. That sort of amazement or wonder or thrill or, or uh, you know how refreshing it is when it all turns out in the end and you get to cry. We are dealing with a God that our initial encounter of his godness, our first problematic relationship with being theists is that we're dealing with a sublime agent higher than ourselves that messes with us. Okay? And everything we, and if we're dealing with the Almighty, everything messes with us, and there's no place we can go to not get messed with. We cannot, we cannot escape this. This is the fear that, that Elihu mentioned, therefore men fear him. So you have this opportunity of either being kind of uppity like Job was being, and God had to go, oh, smack. And, or like the people in Romans, where they're just being fools, they're not going to even look up and acknowledge that all these good gifts come down to them from God, and they should honor and thanks and acknowledge. The other option is to be terrified. That's, what, that's the problem of having a God. Luke 21, we'll start with verse 4. I tell you, my, this is Christ speaking, by the way, you have a high view of him. I hear an amen. amen. Thank you. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, 
has power to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now what's nice about this, you say, oh, this is a Jesus, the dark side of Jesus. Uh, yeah, I could throw you into hell. You might want to be afraid of me, Pete bucko. Verse later, verse 7, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Some of you are more value than many sparrows. A bevy, perhaps, of sparrows. You notice how, you say, how do I, I'm supposed to fear, and then he says, fear not? What's this fear, fear not? The wonderful thing about the terror that God encounters, or like he said back in Exodus 33, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. All the way through the scriptures, as God is revealed, this hairy thunderer aspect, this grim force, had a equivalently present mercy. And as we deal with Christ, as the, the Christian church moves on, the more we become aware of how great God is, the mercy doesn't stay at the same level it was. It grows as well. The revelation of God grows twofold. His sublime height and his great mercy. We fear and fear not. And you know what the feeling is. I've talked to some of you, you've mentioned church sermons. I've always referred to this painting here, and the reason I own it is because of thinking decades ago about sublimity and seeing this painting in history of art. It's the Hudson River School, Frederick Church, uh, Niagara, uh, the Canadian Falls, Horseshoe Falls. And there is no ground in the foreground. It's just water right up to the edge. And you're right, you're looking down the edge of the fall. And I'm glad I'm in this room. That's basically the... I like the fact that it's like a movie. It's not going to... I can walk away. I'm not going to fall in like in Narnia. Okay? Um, and if we did fall in, it would be a short little adventure in Narnia. Because you'd be dead. Um, and the thing is, the, the, the effect is, he has conveyed the danger, the power, the height, all aspects of it, and he has left you feeling, the viewer, secure. You fear and fear not. Because the artist has painted the thing to fear and he has provided it in a frame to hang on your wall and be completely comfortable with it. This is, as this is an aspect of the sublime. Now, the crisis we have with God starts to, you, as you go through the scriptures and you don't skip over these fear the Lord passages and I would get to realize that in Proverbs it's uh, fear of the Lord is this, fear of the Lord is that. You know, you got to start saying, okay, we'll just consider that a Bible cliche and just read over it. <laughs> Exodus 23. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. We not only, when you have a God, you have an agent, superhuman person, who has a degree of influence. The Almighty means he has all the influence. 
And not only that, he doesn't play well with other gods. Okay? He doesn't share. He is a jealous god. So, I not only, it's not sort of this deism or this theistic presence who affects the earth with a storm here or a whirlwind there and you happen to live in a trailer, you're gone. It's not just that kind of accidental presence of a god. I wouldn't be great if I made a few obeisances and sacrifices toward him like I would to Zeus. But no, this god is really demanding. Not just morally, not just that he wants this sacrifice versus that sacrifice, but you know, don't go anywhere else. You're like my wife. He's a stalker god. Okay, he's he's you just slightly maybe you know looked at him in the bar and he's following you everywhere. Isaiah two. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and high, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the high mountains, against all the lofty hills, against, get the picture here? Every high tower, <clears throat> against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. <clears throat> he is jealous. He's even got an opinion about you building the Tower of Babel or something. <laughs> or you having anything that's high. Because anything, remember the definition of the sublime is the emotional reaction dealing with height. And the greater the magnitude of the height, and we can go get satisfied with height. We can go stand in New York City and look at the tall buildings and say, oh, how great is man. We have builded these things. The Lord has a dim view, because the Lord alone will be exalted. The idols shall utterly pass away, and men shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from from before the terror of the Lord. And he mentions to terrify the earth, the terror of the Lord, the terif uh, to terrify the earth multiple times in the next few lines. We have a crisis that we have to face up to that, that somehow this is not just a Bible study that is suggesting to you that wouldn't it be poetic and kind of romantic for you not to have a, not a romantic, a, a non, you're not dating Jesus and he's not stalking you, but that if you just had a more poetically driven relationship with God. That's not what we're asking. We want you to see who he is, how he has communicated himself to be. And as you see more and more of it, the need to get more and more secure, because the higher the threat level gets, the more protection you're going to need to have. And if you're not coming up with the protection as the higher God gets in your perceptions, you're going to feel more and more terror. These words the Lord spoke to all of your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And when I bolded those, you said, well, the midst of the fire, the cloud, the thick darkness, with a loud voice. Those, are, those were happening at Sinai when the law was given. 
I bolded them because it's going to come back to us in Hebrews a little bit later. Yes, I will get there, John. And he added no more, and he wrote them upon two tables of stones and gave them to me. This is Moses, right? And when you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have this day seen God speak with man, and man still live. All the leaders come with Moses and say, Okay, the mountain's talking. There's fire burning. There's smoke. There's this voice. He's telling us his laws. God told the people of Israel the Ten Commandments directly. It wasn't just Moses on the mountain. He wrote them down privately for Moses, but he told the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel directly as they stood around the mountain, and it scared the spit out of them. God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. They said, give us please a mediator. Someone who will be a buffer between. Because it wasn't just if you see his face you will die. In their mind, their emotional reaction was, we're just hearing his voice and it's killing us. We can't take it. You go talk to him. You tell us what he says. We'll listen to you. The Lord heard your words when, he spoke to me, when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have rightly said all that they have spoken. In other words, they were right. It would kill them. All that, all that they had such a mind as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their children forever. God seems to think that this crisis of moment, this crisis of you encountering the living God, is a healthy thing. It's good for you to know. It's good for you to have this reaction. It's good for you to be undone. Joshua 24. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity. This is at the very end of Joshua. He's given the, he's given the altar call. They're saying, just as I am, one more time, and the people of Israel are thinking about it. And serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if you be unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they say, okay. And he said, no, you can't. Down in verse 19, you cannot serve the Lord for he's a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Oh, no, we will, verse 21. Joshua says in verse 22, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. We are Christians. We've made commitments here. We've gone before the Lord, this God, and we've said, 
probably in many cases, casually. And some people you know, to expect forgiveness because the, the Sunday school teacher said we would get forgiveness kind of for free. And you just kind of turn in your chit and you walk the aisle, you did what you did, and this casual thing. And sometimes you're, it's not surprising that Christians sometimes end up acting like Job and start accusing God. I knew a guy just recently who was writing on, online, a friend of mine, and he, was, he had fallen away from the Lord because a friend of his had died in spite of the fact that he had prayed. What are you, idiot, idiot? Would you wish to be swallowed up? Are you going to bring that trot into his presence? People think they are dealing with kind of their boss. And if it gets bad enough, and the working conditions for Christians get bad enough, they can trot into the office and give God what for. This crisis we have with the terrifying God, it's personal, Ecclesiastes. Uh, before I do that, let's, uh, before I do that, there's, oh, here on the left-hand side is that section of mere Christianity. I took out extraneous stuff where the dot, dot, dots are. So if you read it and you go, hold it, he left stuff out. I did it for your own sake. But this was great. On the other hand, we know that if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. That is the terrible fix we are in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all of our efforts are in the long term hopeless. But if it is, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day, and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow, and so our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it, and we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally, and we've made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. When you realize that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what the Christians are talking about. They offer an explanation of how we got into our present state of both hating goodness and loving it. They offer an explanation of how God can be this impersonal mind at the back of the moral law and yet also a person. They tell you how the demands of this law, which you and I cannot meet, have become met on our behalf. How God himself becomes a man to save man from the disapproval of God. It is an old story. If you want to go into it, you will no doubt consult people who have more authority to talk about it than I have. All I am doing is to ask people to face the facts, to understand the questions which Christianity claims to answer. And they are very terrifying facts. I wish it was possible to say something more agreeable, but I must say what I think true. Of course, I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable comfort. It does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I have been describing, and it is no use at all trying to go to that comfort without first going through the dismay. It's a wonderful section. You cannot adequately incorporate Christianity into your life. You cannot really have the sense that you have met God 
and met the answer unless you met this first. And it, it's not so that, oh, I'm really scared just for a moment, but then he's going to make me feel better. I thought he was a freaky, freaky, scary old man, but he's not. He's the lovable Bedouin Jesus. Uh, he's a lovable Middle Eastern, you know, bearded fella that I can, I can really relate to. It's not that he, not this, but that this made this in Christ necessary. And it's personal. We, we, we look at what we have to deal with personally regarding this crisis. Ecclesiastes, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is to better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you upon earth. Therefore let your words be few. Does that truth register? If the phrase, for God is in heaven and you on earth, doesn't shut you up, you've got something wrong with your definitions. It should be, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. He says down in verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase, empty words grow many, but do you fear God? And that comes back to it. Because we like to play it, like Lewis talked about, a, 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 they're playing at religion. That's what so much of the church is today. They may be very serious about their doctrines or their ecclesiology, or they're playing church. They're not having a religious experience with the living God. We're having these dreams, and empty words grow many, and you don't want to go to the annual meeting of any denomination, of any theology, because you will be, hopefully, sleeping through it. You want to sleep through it. It is not the kingdom of heaven being glorified, or Christ being glorified. Empty words grow many. But do you fear God? The social aspect of Deuteronomy 6, that was personal. How you handle yourself walking in to the religious moment. I'm coming before God. Do I know how to comport myself? Do I know how terrifying and how secure? Remember, fear, fear not. Okay? And your, you, your vision of God is going to tell you how much fear, and your acceptance of the grace of God is going to tell you how much security. If you're walking into God with a lot of before God with a lot of sins, you're not going to be very secure. You might have the right view of God, you're just going to be terrified. You might want to confess your sins before you go to the house of God. Corporately, <coughs> now this is the commandment, the statutes, the ordinances with the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that you, it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a great verse. This is the most important verse command of the scriptures says Jesus Christ Hear O Israel the Lord our God is one Lord and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart 
with all your soul and with all your might. Now, Jesus Christ says that's the greatest commandment. He quotes it in Matthew and in Mark. The Mark passage has one extra word. Uh, he shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He added mind. Do with that with what you will. Now, the fact that this is the greatest commandment, that loving God, because that is, you say, well, how do I love God? I haven't seen him. If I saw him, I'd die. But all these subvisions, these ways of seeing, Lewis saw it in the Norse gods and transferred over to Christianity. You can go out into a storm and see God's great power and creation, and you can be thankful that you're not dealing with the Almighty directly, but you know that he's given that so that he can be seen. You can recognize his power and his godness. Um, when you actually process, it's not just sublime. Sublime is such a beautiful response. As an emotional sense, you can't have a higher emotional response. You can't. You're going to love it. You know, um, any young people here? Too young. Okay, everybody's all about. Um, what happens when a young man has carnal relations with a girl? A lot of times he has a good time and then he falls in love because he connects that pleasure with that love. Now, it's not the only way to fall in love, I affirm. But when you have these great encounters, when you went to Grandma and Grandpa's house and it was a great weekend, everybody said, well, that was a better illustration. Ever. Let's go with Grandma and Grandpa mm -hmm. rather than carnal relations. Um, great time. They took you to Disneyland. You love Grandma and Grandpa. Grandma and Grandpa just stood around and paid. Okay? They just, they just you know, they fed you some store-bought cookies that you didn't get at home and Oreos and Disneyland. And you love them. When we encounter our God this way, it's not just fear of the destruction. Do you wish to be swallowed up? It is not just casual lowering God because of your familiarity with his mercies, because you're so familiar with his grace. It's the terror and the security and that wonder, that sense of the numinous again, brings you to the place where you love. The kind of love that is appropriate to this God. And what you're supposed to do with that is, it shall be on your heart, verse 6, you shall teach them, you shall talk of them, you shall bind them, you shall write them. I put those all in red so you can pipe them out and put them on your fridge. they got to be down in your center. You've got to teach them to other people. You've got to be in conversations about them. You shall tie them on to you, basically, with the instruction. You shall write them. How much have we given to the power of God in our lives, in all that we try to accomplish? Uh, this one Lord of ours, the God that we fear. It has all these positive productions. I have these. I just pulled out randomly, almost a bunch of fear of the Lord benefits. 
of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know that one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's not, it's, and again, it's, that's not just cult speak for being a Christian. Fear of the Lord is not being a Christian. Fear of the Lord is um, this. This undergirds you. Because remember, the Lord made the world and all that is in it. That's how we've seen him. He's the designer, and he argues in the book of Proverbs that wisdom was the means by which he built it. He argues in Colossians that Jesus Christ was the means by which he built it. All this is tied together in how powerful God is. The fear of the Lord has one strong, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Acts 9, the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It was multiplying. The, you will look through the scripture and subtract your flushing that phrase down the toilet. Pull it back, redeem it, and say, I'm talking about this terror. Because the word used is the word for terror. You say to yourself, Evan, you've got one page left. What are you going to do with that one minute? I'm going to exceed it. I said, I said earlier that Christians have the same sight of God. Actually, it's more. It's not less. It's not like, oh, Old Testament, the, the, the hairy thunderer, God, the, the God of wrath, you know, the God that destroys cities and blows things up and and then Jesus came along, and, and he came down to us as one of us, kind of a, you know, a youth group leader, a man. <laughs> this whole idea of seeing our God, it does apply to Christ. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. So not only does nature show us God, the Old Testament, other paths by which we can recognize God. Jesus has become that in his incarnation. John 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Henceforth, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we shall be satisfied. <laughs> Philip, a little retarded. <laughs> Jesus said to him, have, you been, have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Oh, says Philip to himself. How can you say, show us the Father? And he said, oh, that's why, Evan, because it was just this Middle Eastern Jew guy standing there, and we finally seen the Father. That's what he's telling Philip. So it must, not, it must lack all that sublimity you're talking about because on the mountain Moses wasn't allowed to see the face of God or his life would be destroyed. But as they looked on Jesus Christ, did they, did not, it wasn't the physical encounter. Just like when I look on the storm, I don't say that is the chariots of God. It is described poetically as the chariots of God, but I am supposed to process this what am I processing about Jesus Christ when I look on him? I have Colossians and Philippians in the margin. He is the image of the invisible God. Remember? The invisible nature of God would clearly perceive the things that have been made. The also the invisible nature of God are clearly perceived in Jesus Christ. 
the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is above all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That Jesus. Not the carpenter Jewish guy that you say, he looks like Woody Allen. That's not the Jesus. The Jesus who we discovered Christ to be. Philippians 2.9 Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, listen to this, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You say, okay, Evan, those are theology passages or passages that are exalting or panegyrics of Jesus and, and hyperbole. You say, well, not hyperbole, but, but you know, you're, are you moving too quickly with this? You know, didn't we step away from the Old <coughs> Testament thing? Yes, we stepped away from the Old Testament thing, the Hebrews passage. Is it less or more sublime for the Christian? Let's start with verse 18. <clears throat> for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers entreat that no further messages be spoken to them. Where was that? That was back on page uh, uh, 3, 2. These words, the Lord spoke out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, the thick darkness with a loud voice, and they entreated that they would not tell me anything. He says, we've not come to that. You have not come to what may be touched. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's the Old Testament sublimity. A mountain quaking with a fire on top and a cloud and a voice coming out of the fire and anything that touched the mountain had to be killed. Okay, yeah, that's, that's scary stuff. Right? We've not come to that. That's not the nature of our relationship. We don't look at Jesus Christ from a human point of view. As we once regarded him, we regard him thus no longer. We have come to Jesus Christ differently. Listen, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. You say, well, I think that sounds kind of positive. That's like a, that's like a party. Festal gathering, angels, Jesus, everything you want, right? It's not like the quaking mountain with the fire and the threats. It's a welcoming thing. And who says that? More graciously than the blood of Abel. 
verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See, I have an offer you can't refuse. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The distinction is not how it works, but where it comes from. The encounter with God in the Old Testament had earthly priests, earthly temple, earthly mountains quaking, you know, all those sorts of things. The, the sublime aspect of actual architecture. The temple in Jerusalem was supposed to have that grotesquely threatening element, the cherubim and the, and the darkness and the gold. But the New Covenant's not that way. He just ramped it up a bit higher. And if you were going to get hammered for rejecting what voice was spoken on earth, you're going to get really hammered if you reject the voice that speaks from heaven. His voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, of, as of what has been made, in order that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Tell me it's not the same thing, just more of it. Now, the wonderful thing about it, the mess, just like the message of this, who the God was and how threatening he was was vague and mysterious, and how does God speak when Elihu speaks that far back? He goes, hey, you can talk to us various ways, we can't tell what it is. And, and uh, in Christ, it has become very clear. Under the law, it became ex-clear, and there was ex-mercy. And now in God and Christ, we've received a kingdom, a, a, a sprinkle of blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. We've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The heights have gotten higher, and the security has ramped us up. We have been lifted up to go with it. We've been secured fixedly with Jesus Christ. We can now look at insane heights that the Old Testament saints could not look at. We can now look at things, as it says in the scriptures, things into which angels long to look. For 2 Corinthians 3. Now if the dispensation of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face because of its brightness, fading as this was. Okay? He's saying... That Old Testament moment, the mountain, the smoke, the glowing face of the of the of the prophet. I mean, that's. I mean, if we had a church like that. Everybody, I mean, great attendance. You know, flame off the top of the steeple. I, my face would glow with a kind of, you know, I would twitch, <laughs> and people would just go, "Oh, this is really religion," and that's what they had in the Old Testament. But God says in Corinthians, "Will not the dispensation of the Spirit be attended?" With calmer waters? No, with greater splendor. For if there was splendor in the dispensation of condemnation, the dispensation of righteousness must far exceed it in splendor. We are looking at that which has shown us the likeness of God. We have walked into the, the heavenlies. We are seated, it says, in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. 
we are not just looking at a Jew. We're not looking at things that can be touched. We're not trying to get just the jolt. We could get that effect. We can start with nature. We can start with the things that start to teach us about the sublime. But we're going to move to that which is heavenly, that is based on righteousness, that we'll be looking on the face of Christ described in Colossians and Philippians. And it says here in verse 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, at the writing of 2 Corinthians, Jesus was long dead and raised and ascended into heaven. How are we looking, beholding the glory of the Lord? It needs to be done, because that's what, what we look upon, what we consider, like what we did when, when it was the, uh, the law of God, that you would put it on your heart, teach them, talk of them, bind them, write them. Who Jesus is. Those great descriptions in Colossians and Philippians and so many other places of who Christ is, has it become something that you look upon? Uh, we're not just... Uh, some people don't looking, like looking at thunderstorms because it scares them. Well, they ought to. They should be scared. I used to get the, my blanket. I'd go sit out on the porch in Annapolis, Maryland and hoping for thunderstorms so I could sit there on the porch and wrap in a blanket and watch it. And it's a tremendous... I always tell the story of from, you know, Roger Boothman. One night, a big thunderstorm here, and, and I was out on the porch with a cigar and a drink and sitting in the dry of the porch. The world was coming to an end off my front porch. In Pullman, a few short miles away, Roger Boothman had decided that hot day to remove the roof of his house. And it was off. And he was spending that night in that storm on his roof with a blue tarp trying to tie it down to his roof to keep the water from coming in. Same storm, different vantage point. I was on my porch with a cigar. It was sublime. It was just terror for Roger. <laughs> we do have a choice about what we look at. And we do have a choice of how much it, it infects what we live in Christ. How the fear of the Lord affects our beliefs, because our fear now has graduated to big boy fear. Our, our fear has graduated to Jesus Christ fear, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That's where we are. And that's what we have to be, you might say, viewing. Otherwise, if I don't view it, if I don't look at it, I don't consider it and realize it is not going to be something touchable like the temple, or something touchable like Mount Sinai. It's going to be these truths that I have been introduced to that I'm going to behold, and that's going to change me into his likeness. I will be moving up in that glory as well. Now, <clears throat> I've said throughout that, uh, that the Christian church and through the history of Christianity has often, I think there have been people who have taken, the, have handled God correctly, um, but so often organizations and institutions and, and generations of learning their Christian P's and Q's um, 
we become uh, mad, basically. We become uninformed. We don't. We think we can chant back the words, and consequently have achieved the sublimity that God would have us. Um, Nebuchadnezzar got above himself as well, and I love this passage at the end of Daniel four. And I say it because it, the Romans passage next to it, we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And sometimes we have to revisit some of the basic categories which we divide life into. Is the sublime vision any part? of your life. It's supposed to be down to your heart, things you teach about, talk about, bind to you, walk in, everything. It's supposed to be. So if it isn't, you need to renew your mind to transform your life. It was so with Nebuchadnezzar. In the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, my counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful for the mystery of your encounter with man and your building for us this universe. We would ask that each of us, from whatever vantage point we are, whatever degree of security we have in your grace, we'd ask that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would see you in your greatness and the things you have made, your infinite power and deity clearly perceived. Or we'd ask that we would rejoice and meditate on those things as we are lifted up also to be secure in it, to find the fear of you, We'd ask also that in your Son we would see you most clearly, and that in seeing you in him we would be changed. In your Son's name, amen.